Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this episode, I catch up with Alana Shear, the author of Don Perdome's new book, and Tony Pedragon. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that pro stock car. It's all about legends and the offseason on this episode. Goodbye, Snake, and hello, Ace. This is the NHRA Insider. And the wildest day in the history of this category is finally complete. Hey everybody, Brian Loans back with a new season, a new year of drag racing coverage here in the NHRA Insider Podcast. And today's show, as I mentioned in the intro, will be Alana Shear, who is the author of Don Perdome, My Life Beyond the 1320, Don Perdome's great biography that was recently published. She's a great friend of mine, a great author, and a woman that has great history in the uh, in the hot rodding and drag racing uh, realm with her work at Hot Rod Magazine. Uh, multiple publications all over the place in, in automotive journalism. So that's going to be a fun conversation. And we have Tony Pedragon coming on as well as uh, we'll kind of catch up on the rumor mill as it is uh, happening out there in Brownsburg, Indiana. We know certain things have happened. Obviously, Mike Green, the big addition to Justin Ashley's team, uh, he will be uh, effectively replacing Aaron Brooks in that job. Hoping Aaron Brooks uh, lands somewhere quickly. He's a talented guy, obviously. Got Justin into competitive shape last year and picked up a win. Uh, there are things going on at Cruz Pedregon Racing as his whole team is now in the shop working. Uh, we know that John Collins and Rip and the guys have been in there kind of inventorying parts, getting things lined up. But now they have the full force of the team working in there. Uh, we have things going on, I guess, on multiple fronts in the sport. I think there's going to be some pro stock announcements coming soon. I've been hearing rumblings of uh, some new people wanting seats in different cars. So we're going to find out how that shapes up in the next few weeks. And undoubtedly, there are teams that are definitely full bore on the sponsorship hunt. We know Terry McMillan is working very hard to find sponsorship for 2021. And we know many other teams are out there doing the same thing. Obviously, it's a challenging environment. Obviously, it's a very challenging time of of uh, <laughs> history to be searching for sponsors, whether you're a race team, uh, whether you're a driver, whether you're a sanctioning body, whoever you are, however you're trying to get business done, this is certainly a climate that is going to make you work for it. Uh, but at the same time, those folks who are going to be successful um, will certainly be rewarded for the uh, for the hard work and the dedication. So when we get Tony on, we'll talk a lot about that type of thing, that type of stuff that's going on, and just kind of set ourselves up for. Um, really what has turned into now kind of the traditional off-season. We're about the normal number of days between when we normally would end Pomona and start in Pomona on a normal season. Uh, of course, we ended in Vegas, and now we're going to start in Gainesville. But we've entered that window, that uh, 80-day-ish window between the end of um, end of one kind of season and the beginning of another. So now the, the crunch time uh, begins to kind of have, feel some effects, begins to kind of take effect on these teams. And uh, we're going to talk about how they're going to approach it and what they're going to do. Um, I feel like uh, as we look at 2021 um, on multiple fronts, I think you know a lot of the things that applied to 2020 are going to apply to 21 in, in certain circumstances in certain ways. Uh, as we all know, just because the fact we turn the page on our calendar doesn't erase any of the things going on in the world right now does give us a little bit of fresh perspective, maybe a little bit of fresh attitude in some respects, but ultimately... Uh, it does not change the state of the world, does not change the current state of the coronavirus or anything else that's going on. So uh, we have to take all this stuff with a, with a grain of salt. I think the idea of being flexible 
well, just like we had to be in 2020, is going to be in effect in 2021. I think that it is going to be a situation where um, we see different parts of the country having different levels of struggle with this coronavirus. We see different parts of the country doing things and operating differently. So who's to say we're not going to be seeing some major changes, not major changes to, to speak of, but significant changes to the schedule. I mean, uh, I think it's been pretty clear since the schedule was announced that even last year, that when things, situations present themselves as being untenable, meaning uh, you're not going to be able to have a race in Los Angeles on XYZ date, you're not going to be able to have a race in this place XYZ date, that uh, there was enough headway, enough room left to make changes, to shift things around, to try to reorganize things. So um, speaking from a mild bit of experience, I can say that there is a, a significant number of contingency plans on the table for different scenarios and different things happening. If 2020 educated schedule makers, educated executives in racing on anything, it was the need to be able to pivot, the need to be able to make changes, the need to be able to have, uh, if not a fallback plan, an alternative plan to what you wanted to do. And uh, who knows how long that's going to last, but when we look at the scenarios and the situations as they lay out right now, uh, we used the term a lot last year, it is it is going to be fluid in 2021. Hopefully less fluid as the year goes on, but I would say in the springtime it is still going to be a fairly uh, wide open tap dance, and it'll be interesting to see who can two-step the best and who can make their way through. You know, that was the other thing. I think the benefit of the teams that were able to get out last year and, and run the, the pole and as many of the races they could it definitely was a learning experience for them as much as it was for us. And anytime you get to put yourself in a situation that's unique and different, uncomfortable to some degree, and then adapt to it, I do feel as though it makes you a better operation and it makes you ultimately better in the end, more educated, maybe more resilient, a little bit more capable of handling the curveballs that uh, life and the sport can throw at you. So uh, as there is not a absolute ton of breaking news to talk about at the moment. Uh, we're going to have Tony Pedregon on for some rumors and some of the news that we do have locked down. Uh, we're going to transition into our first conversation with Alana Shear. And Alana is, uh, as I mentioned, a friend of mine for a very long time. She is an esteemed magazine editor, automotive journalist. Uh, you can find her on YouTube. She's all over the place. She's She does a lot of different stuff. Um, she can wrench. You'll hear her uh, likely over the course of this conversation talk about her ramp trucks uh, they, her and her husband Tom, uh, have an affinity as I think a lot of us do for the 1960s kind of funny car ramp trucks. Um, they have two of them, and they are restoring uh, both of them. And we're talking like the full size Prudhomme ones that he had. So there's a, an affinity and a connection there. But um, Alana's great. She's talented. And her book, uh, Don Prudhomme, My Life Beyond the 1320, in my estimation, in terms of a biography in drag racing, is uh, nearly unparalleled for what it does, the depth of story that it tells, and the places that it takes us into the life of Don the Snake Prudhomme. So without further ado, let's talk to Alana Shear, my friend and a very talented author who has penned one of the best drag racing biographies, in my opinion, ever. I am so honored to be here. Well, Truly excited. Yeah, it's great to have you. And uh, first off, congratulations on the uh, success of the book. I have not seen a single person who has received it or read it say anything other than wow. And <laughs> it's a great compliment, obviously, because there's a lot of you know motorsports books out there. But this one really is different. And um, first off, thanks for taking some time today. And uh, I guess I want to get your initial impressions of the response the book has received. I have been... I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but I've been blown away. Um, 
I hoped that people would respond the way that they have uh, positively and um, with with the information that, that there was stuff in there that they hadn't known about Don. Uh, but the, the response has been more than I expected and the people responding have been like a who's who of motorsports legends telling me that I did a good job or that Don did a good job and that's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's great. And it has to be very gratifying and I know this was uh this was not a short process and I want to talk about that in in a few minutes. But I guess the first thing I want to ask you is what was the genesis of the project cuz all these things come together in different ways. So I guess what was the actual genesis of this book getting made? Um it's interesting actually. You know, Don and I have worked together on stories for many years. Uh, when I was a staff editor at Hot Rod, um, I actually already knew Prudhomme because uh, he and I both shared an interest in restoring ramp trucks. Yes. Um, and <laughs> that's a whole other story. We'll, we'll cover that some other time. <laughs> but, uh, but so I knew him already. And when I was at Hot Rod, where obviously we did a lot of stories about the great days of drag racing, sometimes I would just call him and be, be like, hey, I want to check this with you. Does this sound right? Or can you describe this for me? And we'd done archive stories from the amazing Peterson Magazine archives uh, where I'd found a photo of him in Baja and been like, wait, you went to Baja? And he was like, oh, yeah, here's the story. And, of course, anything with Prudhomme is like, here's the story. And then it ends up being just like this absolute legend. You know? <laughs> like, like, oh, yeah, here's the story. Yeah, I went to Baja to fill in for Steve McQueen. Um, but... Uh, so, so we'd worked together before, and we we got along really well. You know, he's a he's a really interesting person with a lot of he has a lot of interests outside of drag racing. Yeah. So he really enjoys being able to talk to someone who understands what he did in racing and can talk about racing, but also can talk about gardening or dogs or or off roading. So, you know, we we got along. We did a bunch of stories and. We had done a fairly large profile piece for Haggerty Magazine in which we kind of touched just a little bit on some family stuff, um, which he was sort of famous for never talking about. Yeah. And uh, and so then, whatever this was, two years ago now, he told me that he was thinking of doing a book with Cartech, that, they, that Cartech had approached him about doing a biography and he was thinking of doing it. And um, he didn't ask me to do it, he just said, do you think I should do it? And I said, of course you should. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, um, and maybe three weeks later or something, he called me again and said, it's so much work to do a book. <laughs> I, I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to tell someone everything over the phone, like someone who doesn't know anything, but would you do the book? <laughs> and I was like, wow. I've never done, I've never done a book, man. What are you talking about? Know, like, longest story I've ever written was like 3,000 words. But I can't do a book. And he's like, nah, I think you could do the book. I'll do it if you'll do it. So, you know, what am I supposed to say? No? Yeah, right. Exactly. At that point, now it's on your lap, right? Yeah. Um, so, obviously, it was incredibly flattering and terrifying. And uh, and that was how it started. He, he actually came to me to, to see if I would work on it with him. And I think the, the, the brilliance of that decision by him and by you of, of taking the work is that what ends up getting produced in the end is a drag racing book that is 
again, I'm not saying this just because we're friends. I'm saying it because it's the truth. It is beyond beyond parallel. I mean, there's nothing that has been written in our sport about a person of the caliber of Don Perdome that actually is as depthful or has as much depth as this book has. And, you know, the fact that the title is, you know, My Life Beyond the 1320 is is I, I was so interested in seeing how far beyond the 1320 we were going to go. And my God, we went really far. Um, you know, <laughs> we went really far. And, th- and that's the magic of it, where obviously there's a lot of great drag racing books out there, but they really tend to just talk about what people did on the racetrack. And a lot of that stuff is great. But to read this book, I think the main thing I, I see from people who have read it is their response about his childhood and about his family and about the interpersonal relationships he had in his life that we really didn't understand the meaning of. So for you, the personal relationship is is one thing. And again, you'd worked on some previous pieces, but how do you work toward actually getting information from him? You know, the stories about his brother Monette and, you know, the stories about obviously kind of coming to terms with the fact that he is a black man. You know, they're, they're, these are things that are not easy to broach with people that you know on any level. So talk to me about that process, working toward the real kind of meat of these stories. Uh, uh, just a small thing. Yeah, just a, just a small ask from you, huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yes, uh, it was important to do more than just a racing story. And and there have been some amazing racing stories. Oh, absolutely. You know? I mean, Don Garlitz's book is is one of my favorites. Um, Cole Coons has written some incredible drag racing stuff, uh, and so I and I read bio, I read biography after biography uh, when I said yes to this, I, and I was like, what you know, what what made one stand out from a, another? And I would talk about them with with Don. Uh, you know, he's not a huge reader, as he talks about in the book. He's dyslexic, but he he likes to read like short pieces of things. So like I'd send him clips or I'd send him covers and be like, do you like this? Do you like that? And he's like, look, I don't want to do a numbers book. He's like, people already have all of that. It's just, that's what they ask me about every time I do an interview. He's like, I don't even care. I can't even tell you the numbers anymore. Like I don't remember (laughs) them, you know, like he's like, if somebody wants that, they can just look it up. The the NHRA has amazing archives. Like nobody needs that from me. He's like, I want to talk about, who I actually am because I don't think anybody understood it. And maybe some people will like me better. I mean, (laughs) he didn't say it exactly like that, but you know, I mean, everybody deep down inside wants to be understood. Um, and even people who, you know, who seem like total badasses and, you know, made of ice have, have something that's driving them and want people to know what that is. Yeah. And so, well, no, that that element of it is is 100 percent true. And I think, you know, to me, the interesting thing is when you go back and you read like the Hal Higdon, you know, six seconds to glory, you know, book, um, which is a great kind of period Don Perdome book. We see uh, we see a guy there that I think we really understand a whole lot better after reading your book. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love that. I, yeah, I wish um, if any booksellers are out there, please package those two together. I think it would be a, <laughs> a great package. Um, yeah, I, you know, I mean, you and I have talked about writing before. Um, obviously, that's maybe not obviously. That is what I do. Um, and in particular, I like to write about people who do amazing things um, successfully or unsuccessfully. And I, because I think that, there's 
I don't know what the right way to say this is. <laughs> You'd think I was uh, working for a living writing words? I don't know words. Um, what drives people is applicable no matter what it is that you're doing. And the same thing that makes somebody successful at drag racing could make you successful at podcasting. It could make someone a successful business person. It's about figuring out like what what you do when things go badly and how you fix it and how you maintain enough confidence to keep trying again. And I just, I'm fascinated by that. Um, and one of the things that I think that we've done as a culture, especially in motorsports and automotive journalism, that is a disservice to all of us is that we've built a kind of hero that doesn't have a backstory. Yes. That's um, a great point. Yes. We built this uh, man, usually a man, who um, is fearless. Um, you know, everyone loves that line, died doing what, what he loved. You know, like, yeah. like nobody wants to die no. doing what they love. I, I, and, I'm with uh, you on that. <laughs> and so I think that the idea that people struggled to get somewhere, that they weren't just impeccable geniuses, is something that we can we can fix now if we start talking to people. I mean, it's too late to talk to everyone. You know, we can't, we can't ask these things of, of Mickey Thompson, um, of Dan Gurney, uh, you know, it's, uh, they're gone, but the people who are still around can, can tell us. And every single one of them that I've talked to has had real struggles to get to where they are that to me do not make them less cool. You know, it doesn't make them less manly or less powerful or less interesting. It only makes it more incredible to me that they achieved what they did. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that front. And, you know, one of the things I, I as I kept was reading the book and, and again, trying to kind of place Prudhomme mentally in, in some of these situations and, and through his career. And again, uh, for those of you who have not read the book, it is a, it is a fantastic telling of his career as well. So you're not, you're not simply reading stories that are away from the racetrack. <laughs> There's all kinds of racing stuff in the book, but I, I kept going back to this idea in my head that, that somewhere deep down inside Prudhomme during his, you know, most dominant period in the sport. And during this period where he himself was like, you know, I wasn't the best guy to get along with and I wasn't the easiest guy to be around and I wasn't the nicest guy. I feel as though he he knew somewhere in his mind that he needed to be that person at that period of time to do what he was doing. I feel like he under he knew that if the the side of him that obviously wanted to come out and has come out in this book was who he was at that time period, he wouldn't have done what he did rightly or wrongly. I feel like that's where his head was at. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, and he might've been right, you know, I mean, I um in like specifically talking about ideas of race. Um, you know, when I talked to other black racers about people who were able to pass as white, they were like, Oh yeah, it was, that was probably a good idea. <laughs> like nobody that I spoke to, I'm sure that there are people um, who feel that, you know, maybe he, he let, he let some black fans down by not coming out, out earlier with, with his knowledge about his family, but he really didn't understand it. Yeah. Um, and, and he has a lot of sort of guilt about that now, a lot of questions still about how to, how to approach that. Um, I think that 
for a lot of people who are mixed race, it's always sort of confusing to figure out um, sort of how to represent yourself without taking culture that isn't yours or ignoring culture that is yours. Um, and all of those things apply to Don uh, in this book. And, and I know that they were something that he was worried that people wouldn't understand when they read it. Yeah, and and it's and it's something that's come up even in my own life. Uh, when J.R. Todd won his first race uh, at Sonoma, California, a couple of years ago, he was, you know, we were doing the post race media, and I'm looking at I'm looking at the media sheet, and he's, you know, the first African American funny car racer to win a race, and it's like, uh oh. And so I said I said to J.R. before we did the thing, I said, hey man, I'm going to introduce you as the first, you know, African American funny car winner, and he's like, he looks at me, and if J.R.'s you know, quick witted. And he looks at me. He's like, "Has anyone ever heard about Don Prudhomme?" And I said, "Dude, it's a long story." I said, "But we're." I said, "This is what's going to happen," and um, you know, it's it's been one of those things, like you said, and it's it's obviously that's not the central focus of the book, but to me, it's obviously one of the most powerful moments of him, you know, talking about who he is and, and where he came from. Um, to evolve the conversation a little bit, in terms of you mentioned the fact that he has so many interests that that span outside of drag racing in motorsports and in, in life in general. But I feel like when we look at him, you know, the section of the book when he goes to Europe and, and he's talking to Nikki Lauda and he's hanging out with Jackie Stewart. I mean, this is stuff that does not happen to anybody else in drag racing. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, it's pretty incredible. Um, I mean, I, I found that when I do look into things more there's more crossover between various motorsports than you would ever expect um and as you know there were several different projects um that brought drag racers to europe and and when they were there they did tend to cross over with you know with f1 or um sports car racers in ways that we wouldn't have expected but for don his interest in it was long-standing you know i think he he was interested in it from the sixties when, you know, when he first started doing the Ford stuff and he met Dan Gurney and AJ Foy and Mario Andretti. Yeah. I mean, and that, that, you know, one of the things I, I always talk about, I don't always talk about it. I bring it up occasionally. I think it annoys some people <laughs> is that, you know, drag racers, even to this day, have this weird built in inferiority complex when it comes to their standing or place in motorsports. And, you know, when we look at a guy like Prudhomme and rightfully holds himself in the same category, as some of the people you just mentioned, you know, and, and I feel like we as a sport in general, always tend to kind of like look down at our shoes and kick the rocks when we, when we see the road racing guys walk by or we see the, we see the open wheel racers walk by and it's like, you guys got to pick your chins up because Prodome's chin was never down. I mean, he, when he, was ta- <laughs> when he was talking to these guys, he was talking to them in his own mind as an equal. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and there is, they are equal They're I mean, they're all very difficult and they're all very incredible. And I mean, anybody who hasn't, who hasn't tried drag racing even at a sportsman level has no idea how much um mental focus and sort of like purity is in a a well-done drag race yeah you know like bracket racing even is you know i i'm in automotive media so i go to a lot of different car tests and when There are more tests that are at road tracks than at drag racing strips. And the few that have been at at drag racing strips have been like, oh, 
none of you guys can launch a car to save your lives. <laughs> Half of you can't make it down a quarter mile straight. Usually they end up having to cut it to like an eighth mile race because the journalist can't drive straight for a quarter mile. So it's not easy. And for sure, drag racing deserves to be you know, in the same categories, people who are great at drag racing deserve to be in the same categories as people who are great at sports car racing. And I think the, and I think the reality comes back to his intensity as a competitor. And I think that is where, um, that is where he found himself very comfortable amongst those other forms of, of racers, whether it was here or abroad is he understood and they all understood that, that what they were doing was a dangerous and b required a skill set that most people don't have. Let's be honest. I mean, we've seen a lot of people get in a multitude of race cars over the years, whether it's a stock car or an open wheel car, especially in, in a drag racing car that simply aren't good at it. And as much <laughs> as they want to pay to get in that seat and try it, they're just not that good and they get exposed very quickly. And Brian, I, I, I'm right here. I can hear you. <laughs> well, listen, I'm one of them. I've often talked about how I was the worst bracket racer of all time. The fact that my own father didn't kill me when we raced together when I was a kid is a testament to his, <laughs> you know, his benevolent, his benevolent personality. But, you know, it, it it's one of the things that has always resonated with me about Don Prudhomme and resonated throughout this book, which is. I'm going to take this very seriously. I'm going to be not only a professional at it, I'm going to be the best professional at it. And some of that is just who he is. I mean, actually, I would say all of that is just who he is because even now retired, you know, he's he's really chill. Like people who covered him in the racing days will be like, whoa, he's a totally different person. You've never seen what he was like in the racing days. Uh, but I have seen it twice. Um, once was when he brought the ramp trucks to Barrett Jackson, um, to sell them, to auction them off. Yes. The Hot Wheels trucks. And, uh, when, when that bidding was happening and it was, it was outside of his control and he was feeling competitive about how they would sell. He was a dick that day. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> so, he was so stressed and he was so focus and I was like oh that's what it was like you know and um I hope he forgives me for saying that the the other time was the first time I believe that he raced um well I guess it would be the second time that he raced Nora but the contemporary off-road racing he did Baja twice in um uh ATVs with uh PJ Jones yes and the first year he had a hard time for the first half of it, and there was one day where they had ha- they just they'd had a terrible run, and he wasn't he wasn't feeling well. His co-driver wasn't feeling well. They weren't like getting along real well, and he was so um, just sort of he was like had a a, a circle of angry energy around him. <laughs> Like it was emanating then, off of him, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then the next day they did they did a lot better. I think they they switched out some co-drivers and he got somebody who was um, more matched to his personality. Gotcha. In terms of you know encouraging and giving better instructions that he understood better, and and it was a totally different person. Then he was like laughing again, having a beer at the end, like totally cheered up, and so that kind of competitive nature is a part of who he is even now, even when it doesn't matter. So you can just picture what it must have been like when it did matter, when he wasn't going to be able to, you know, 
bring home a paycheck if it didn't work out. Yeah, I mean, like you said, not only did it matter, it was the only thing that mattered. You know, it was, it was, it was. I mean, quite literally, like you said, life or death to some degree. Yeah, in so many ways, you know, I mean, the he really was um, paying his bills with it. Yeah. You know, so so financially, it mattered, and and all of us can understand some financial stress. Uh, yeah, um, and then there were all of these things that you know, he might not have known he was trying to prove at the time, but, you know, you already talked about, uh, you know, you already talked about race. And then one of the big things for him, really, I would say even maybe more than the, than the ideas of race in this book are his fear of people thinking he was stupid. Yeah. You know, having trouble in school, having trouble reading and, um, being surrounded by people who, you know, we're kind of fast talkers and fast readers and all these contracts and stuff. He really, I think, wanted to prove that he was as good as everyone around him, even though he had grown up thinking that he was not very smart. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. Like you said, what drives people, you know, to do these things? And and everybody has, everybody has these things that, that are in their head that they want to overcome, whether they want to overcome them overtly or by the ways that they can. And that's certainly certainly was two of them for him. Uh, two relationships I, I love his discussions about in this book I want to talk about. The first one is with Don Garlitz. And <laughs> obviously, you know, two men who are, you know, maniacally driven to some degree, of course, over over their racing careers. But it is because Garlitz, listen, uh, Garlitz is not a guy who was found to be a friend to a lot of people. Not that he was ever a bad guy. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is you don't you don't go down a list of racers that think that say oh yeah Don Garlitz was one of my great friends. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean Don Garlitz and Don Perdome were by any measure really good friends and continue to be. They have a fascinating relationship. Um, I actually I wish there was more Garlitz in the book, but uh, really they they didn't have as much racing against each other as you you know as you would yeah. think because they were often in in different categories. Sure. Um, but it was Garlitz come, comes in and out of the story always in a kind of frenemy way. Yeah, that's <laughs> you true. Know, like, yeah, <laughs> like they they were there for each other to help when it was crucial. I mean, they there are very few there are like very big spots in in the racing and in each other's lives where one helped the other. Um, but then they also totally resented each other's success yeah <laughs> um and and even today i mean i don't they get into fights still these guys like you know i mean all of them do like you know you've talked to them but you know that somebody will be restoring a car and like call someone else and be like you have this part and that person will be like yeah it's a hundred bucks and then the other guy will be like F you, I'm not paying you a hundred bucks. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't matter, guys. Like, none of it matters. Like, like he has it, you want it, a hundred bucks. Like, you could drop that on the ground, not ever know it was missing. But, like, they're just, like, so, they're, like, they're always kind of, like, needling at each other. Yeah, it's not, it's not 1965 anymore, guys. You have the hundred bucks. Yeah, you have the hundred to spend. And the other relationship <laughs> is with Wally Parks. And this one, to me, is uh, is great in the sense of, again, Wally Parks, 
you know, had, was kind of a one-man force of nature in so many ways. And when we talk about Don Garlitz and Molly Parks, we're talking about two people who, you know, had such great success together, but who really, in in the deepest rooted ways, did not like each other. But then we go to we go to Prudhomme and and Parks, and we see this same sort of drive. We see this same sort of of need want for success. This need want to dominate and to be king of the hill. And he has a fantastic relationship with Wally Parks. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? Um, I mean, if you want me to sort of make guesses at it, um, <laughs> I I would say that uh, that Prudhomme l- learned from two very smart marketers. He learned from Ivo and he learned from McEwen very early that um, there's a certain amount of rule following, even in this outlaw sport, that smooths the way for you. Gotcha. And if you look at Prudhomme's career, it's very um it's very sponsor friendly. Oh right? Sure. Like he was very smart about that stuff. He didn't he didn't get involved in scandals. I think there's a there's a small section where he's talking about Jungle Jim. Yeah. And Jungle Pam and like You'd think that Prudhomme would have loved that scene, right? Like hot girls and kind of wild parties. Um, but he said, when I when I've asked him about it, he's like, he's like, I don't know how that guy paid his bills. You know, who's gonna who's gonna be comfortable backing him when he's you know like clearly and obviously doing drugs and like his you know his car looked cool but it was just a huge picture of him on it you know how's that you know nobody's paying for that (laughs) um and so i think that you know i think that on on one hand prudhomme realized that um not fighting wally was much smarter than going the garlits route you know or um or go you know like going the um bobby allison route and and fighting uh france you know like don't don't fight the boss publicly <laughs> yeah and i'm sure um, they I mean, i'm sure they had their their share of spirited conversations behind closed doors or over the phone but like you said it never it never made it to the front page of the paper right and then the other thing which is more personal i think is that you know like anyone who's grown up with um a parental figure who was disappointing to them i think particularly boys and their fathers uh if you find an, an older person who's willing to show support to you and show some faith in you, then you really absorb that sense of fa- like a father figure. And I think that for Prudhomme, Wally really was that, you know, he, he helped him make decisions uh, on various changes in, you know, in car ownership. He helped him um, when things were going badly in the eighties to, to kind of take a step back and, yeah. and refocus. And he welcomed him back when he did. Yeah. So they were really close on a personal level too. Yeah. And, and you can see it, um, you know, when he wins races like the U S nationals in the eighties, uh, you know, Wally was often down there to shake hands and, you know, he was always gracious with everybody. But when Prudhomme wins in the mid eighties, it isn't like nice job. Don Perdome, it's literally like a father <laughs> hugging his son. I mean, you can see it. You know, yeah. you, you watch the response that the way that Perdome turns around and sees Wally, the way that Wally approaches him, it's a, it is to me like a singular moment in time that really does personify or just kind of bring to life what their relationship was. 
And the last thing I want to talk about here is the overriding relationship that, that travels through this whole book, which is the relationship between Lynn and Don Prudhomme, who <laughs> it is, it's an amazing story. And it's a, it's a, in so many ways, in so many ways, this book is the movie that someone needs to make about the guy's life. And I really, they made the Snake and Mongoose movie and stuff and that was cool or whatever. But, but this really is the, this really is the story. And what an incredible, <laughs> the romance. well, yeah, the romance and the not romance and the mistakes and the, and the figuring it out and the support. And it is, it's almost beyond anything I've ever read in terms of an actual documentation of how two people hung in there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so much more, right. Um, Yes, I you know I would love to take credit for for how much of Lynn uh, is included in the book because it's very important to me when I am telling stories to say well who was behind you you know in particular with these famous men what you know what were the women doing there's no famous man out there who doesn't have at least one very very supportive woman behind him usually many. Sometimes they know about each other. Sometimes they don't. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I would, you know, like I say, I would like to take credit for it, but I can't because from the very beginning, Don mentioned Lynn repeatedly. Um, he always has. He's always thanked her. Um, even when I was doing research and reading old Sports Illustrated articles and stuff, there's not a lot of personal detail about families, but there is always. Uh, mentions of Lynn and the work that she was doing in the office, mentions of Donna and how sweet Don and Donna were together, you know, even in these old stories when she's a little kid. Um, and so that family relationship, probably because his own childhood was so difficult, yeah. and and people often have kind of, they either repeat the mistakes their parents made, or they manage to just really go the opposite way. And I would mm -hmm. say that for the most part, Prudhoe managed to go the opposite way, and he, you know, recognized the the value of the partner that he had with Lynn, and they're really friends. I mean, even today, they they're funny together. They like each other. They tell each other jokes and make each other laugh, and it's uh, it's really nice to see. That's a cool thing, and I, and I have I have made a humongous misstep here because we have not spoken about Roland Leong yet, who is another person <laughs> that you have uh, you have an incredible friendship with Roland that I know goes back years. But I mean, we can't not uh, have this conversation <laughs> without including Roland because there's a couple of a couple of things that I that I really love about their relationship. One that it continues to endure to this day, and two, um, the thought of an Asian guy. And Don Prudhomme, who really or not at that point is a black guy, in the mid-60s, driving around, running all these tracks. And, I mean, there's a couple incidents, like the one in Texas he talks about, that are downright kind of freaky about, we're going to run that one again because you won. And that shouldn't have happened, basically. Um, it's it's a wild thing. And I, I have to believe that those early days are what forged the bond that still keeps those guys together today. They're lovely, aren't they? I mean, all of all of the friendships in this book, I think, are incredible and and maybe my favorite thing about it because, again, let's break down that myth that people are successful alone and yeah. lonely. You don't, yeah. you know, you don't have to be that way. You can love people and still be successful. And um, anyone who's ever seen Don and Roland together. Oh, they're, it's fantastic. <laughs> oh, my God. They're, they would get in trouble right now. Like, if you sent those guys to Vegas right now, like, you better have bail money already. Um, but, yeah, I 
I love the fact that they, that they met. They just understood each other. They um, they wanted to learn together. You know, they were pretty similar in in sort of skill set when they first started working together on the Hawaiian. And you know, I mean, there's so many people that we got to talk about. People are just going to have to read the book. They are. But, you know, with with sort of Keith Black's um, tutelage, assistance, yeah. <laughs> another another father figure in this book. Uh, Don and Roland were able to sort of learn together and and develop into these incredibly competent, you know, engine builder and driver, respectively. But um, you know, and Roland still tunes cars today. Yeah, he's uh, he's a great dude. And again, I know that you've had a friendship with Roland for years. You went over to England with him couple years ago I did. yeah i did it was so great <laughs> <laughs> well alan i want to thank you for taking the time today and uh, again i cannot and uh, congratulate you enough on the book and i cannot encourage anybody listening to this to make sure if they have not already gotten their copy of don the snake perdome my life beyond the 1320 they get it i think as the last half hour has illustrated there is an incredible depth of storytelling in here that really i've never seen in another drag racing book that exists <laughs> so well done well, thank you very much. I, uh, you know, I hope to write some more. Um, but it was, it was really just an honor, and um, I was afraid to do it. I thought maybe we would fight, maybe we would not get along afterwards. But um, I think, if it isn't too arrogant to say so, that we're closer friends than ever because it, we really enjoyed doing it. It was. I just got to talk to Don for for hours for two years. <laughs> It's incredible. Well, listen, you got to be closer friends now because you spilled all the beans. If, even if they didn't make it to the page, <laughs> you, you you got all the beans. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Just just wait for the behind the scenes story. Thank you very much, Alana. Thanks for your time. Oh my God, thank you, Brian. Super talented author, great friend, and someone who approached this biography with Don Prudhomme uh, with a great relationship. As you heard her describe that the relationship she had with the snake before they started writing together and the result of their relationship. And their closeness was the revelations that are in this book. So if you have not read it, have not bought it, I highly recommend that you do. It is uh, one of the best uh, kind of deep dives into the life of an NHRA superstar that has ever been put together. Now let's move on to our second guest on the NHRA Insider Podcast. Going to be talking some turkey here. Well, actually not turkey. That was a couple of months ago. We're going to be talking insider stuff with Tony Pedregon, who is my right-hand man on the NHRA on Fox Broadcast. Tony, how are you doing today? Good. Good morning, Brian. How's things out there in uh, sunny, beautiful Indianapolis? Well, that was the case yesterday. It was almost 50 <laughs> degrees, and that was cause for celebration, but I made it through. I made it through. I got I got COVID before the holidays. Um, yeah, I this is a crazy school. thing that not a lot of people know about. So if you if you want to talk about it, I'm all, I'm all for it because it's pretty wild. Well, you know, I think, I think what happened to me has happened to uh, a lot of us, a lot of uh, people that we know, a lot of racers, a lot of crew members, a lot of people in the industry. Uh, I got COVID a few weeks before Christmas, and uh, I knew I had it for a week because I, I had it in February, and I had the same symptoms. Of course, in February, you know, it wasn't really popular. Nobody knew exactly what, you know, what COVID was. Um, but I knew I had it once, you know, once it came out. A few months later, I had all the symptoms. I never went and tested for the antibodies, but I had the same symptoms. I knew I had it. Uh, I stayed at home for a week, and when I was able to get out, I went to the hospital just so I can get uh, some antibiotics and some meds. And they said, you have pneumonia. Uh, come back if your oxygen levels get low. And uh, three days later, my oxygen levels, uh, you don't want them to dip below 90. They were 82, 85. And uh, six days later, I walked out of the hospital. I was in intensive care one of the nights. And um, it's a horrible thing when you get the pneumonia with it. 
I mean, it's yeah, it's a nightmare, and um, you know, I I I hesitate to. I'm not going to bring up other people's names, but as you said, there's been. Over the last several weeks, there's been a lot of racers who uh, have come down with us. I'm not saying people in Indianapolis necessarily, but people across the country. And it's a it's a crazy thing. You and I talk pretty frequently, and I had no idea you were sick because we hadn't talked in a little while. I shot you a text, <laughs> and you're like, "Yeah, I'm doing better. I'm out of the ICU." And I'm like, "Wait a second, what? Yeah, this is it was crazy." I had the task to plan. I wanted to tell everybody after after I was <laughs> after I was okay but you know for the racers and for the people and these athletes that have had it um, you know you don't completely recover right away you know I'm I've uh, I'm a few weeks down the road I've got my negative test before I left the hospital and um, you know it lingers you know you're you're 60 percent 70 percent you really if you have the pneumonia you have to work on your breathing so uh, keep the mask on and um, you know stay away from people if you can and uh, Keep your dang hands clean. Exactly. Wash your hands. So right. uh, moving on to, to, I guess, less crazy topics, I think I think the first thing I want to talk to you about is the fact that, uh, obviously, Mike Green coming on to uh, Justin Ashley's team, I think is, you know, one of the biggest news stories that broke over the over the uh, kind of break we were on right there. And I guess I want to get your first impressions on, on this move. Well, you know, uh, with the playoffs, NFL playoffs coming up and basketball season already in full swing, you know, we – we listened to all the news, especially after, you know, the regular season of the NFL. You know, you have coaches getting fired, offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators. There's all these all this shuffling, and that happens in professional sports. And uh, this sport is no different. Uh, you know, the, the pay scales are different. Maybe the stakes are uh, on a different level. But, you know, the same thing happens. So uh, I think that the Mike Green addition is going to be good. You know, the talent that Aaron Brooks has is he doesn't just show up and tune the car. He builds yeah. uh, everything from the chassis. He'll assemble the car. He's done that. He did that with the, uh, you know, with the Mike Ashley, with the Justin Ashley machine, uh, 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 Mike McIntyre, the funny car. So some of the cars that he still tunes, he has built from the ground up. So, you know, Aaron Brooks is a very talented individual. So what exactly the reason is, it's hard to say, you know, they did blow a lot of parts up. I think you can go back and, and, you know, point your finger at maybe some manufacturing uh, defects or defaults. Uh, but whatever the case, you know, bringing Mike Green in is um, is going to be a good thing for that team. Uh, you look at what he did with Tony Schumacher in a short amount of time. We talked a lot about the chemistry that he and the driver had. But, yeah. you know, this was a guy that assembled a new team that took a, a second or third string car and, and made it very successful in a matter of, you know, four or five or six races. So... Uh, you know, the Justin Ashley car, it's already up and running. So I, I think that's going to be uh, a more formidable team. If you look at, you know, how they performed, I mean, they were, they were, a, they finished seventh in the, in the championship. So uh, I think that's going to improve. Yeah. And I, you know, not that, the, not that Mike Green needs it, but I mean, when you have a guy in the seat that's going to effectively on average buy you two hundredths of a second, every time he steps on the gas pedal, um, that's probably not a bad thing. Yeah, that's that's very uh, that's a luxury for a, a tuner, and um, you know I know I know some some people will argue with me, but I'm of the opinion that you know some of these tuners they have to factor in the, the capability of their driver when they go up against an opponent. Um, I, I'll argue that you know sometimes they might try to get a little more aggressive to the point where you know they have a higher rate of of uh, breaking the tires loose because yeah. they know they have to race let's say a Justin Ashley or, or maybe an Antron Brown 
um, you know, maybe a Sean Langdon, there's, there's a couple of hundreds that are, you know, that are available on the starting line. So, uh, that's a game changer. And I think that's something that Mike Green will not have to worry about much. In fact, I, I think if he can, uh, you know, play the odds, so to speak, uh, I, I think that's going to be a, a good thing, a good situation for him. You know, you obviously you've you've uh, seen this from all sides as an owner, driver, all of it. I guess beyond just how much are you going to pay me per year? What are the what are the conversations like when you're going to bring a new crew chief on? And again, outside of the pay scale stuff, because that's just typical business. But in terms of, you know, do you have to sit down and talk philosophy? I mean, what is the conversation you have when you go, okay, yeah, Mike Green's our guy. Well, it starts at the top. You know, I think a lot of people forget when you have sponsorship. Um, believe it or not. Uh, a lot of companies say, you know, hey, we, we trust you. We know you're a winner. You've proven it. We're with you. You know, they give it the old hurrah. But when it comes <laughs> down to it, you know, at the end of the year, the sponsors put pressure on these team owners and the drivers. Um, you don't see it all the time. It's more behind the scenes. But uh, you look over at Don Schumacher Racing, and over the years, he has made a lot of internal changes, a lot of shuffling with crew chiefs because of sponsorship. You know, sponsors say, hey, we want to win, too. And we've been here for a long time and we pay X amount of money and we expect more. So I got to believe that it starts at the top uh, with the sponsors. They want uh, they want results. And and then it goes from from there to the team owner and the team owner has to make those tough decisions. He has to look at the, uh, you know, the bill that he gets at the end of the year for engine blocks and for crankshafts and for superchargers and manifolds, intake manifolds, all these parts that are so dramatic in slow motion that we show on the show, um, that's, those are dollar signs. So, so that's the next thing, you know, the economics of it. And, and it kind of trickles down and that's when they, their wheels start turning and then they look at who's available and, and maybe not necessarily in that order, but Mike Green was available. So all of a sudden, you know, they're starting to, you know, get creative and, and think, well, you know, we've got these issues and there's a guy here that we might be able to get, um, and, you know, the rest of it just plays out. You know, they start those conversations and they talk dollars and cents and money and and what you can do. But um, there's always that interview process. And I believe that Mike Green probably sat in front of the team owner and um, and maybe convinced him or sold him. It probably wouldn't have taken much because all you have to do is look back. Exactly. You know, on the races, yeah. especially that one impressive win. Oh, man. That they got when Tony Schumacher went toe to toe with uh, with Steve Torrance in that final round. And not only left with them, but outran them in the final. Yeah, that was um, both of us. Uh, that was, I mean, by far the best side by side race of the season for so many reasons. It was uh, that was a, a great moment, and yeah, and Mike was uh, the guy behind the you know the chef behind the, the dish there in that uh, in that final round. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess one last question I have is, how much of a benefit is it do you think for Green to be coming in? to work with Justin Ashley after he's worked with Austin Proc cuz i mean you really you got two two young guys that i think approach this in a lot the same way they're both very serious about it they're both very talented at what they do and you know having the young driver experience that he had with Proc i, I would assume kind of helps him you know acclimate himself with Justin as well i think it'll be very seamless i, I think the only thing that they have to do which is what he's doing now he's at the shop he's spending time he's uh, becoming familiar with his players, with his crew. Um, I don't doubt that he brought some of them with him. You know, crew chiefs usually do that if they have a, a reliable uh, person that does the clutch, uh, somebody on the bottom end, anyone that he can trust that he has chemistry with, he's going to bring with him. So uh, I don't think it'll be a big surprise to see some of that personnel 
the new people that he has. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of working together. So what they're going to do in the offseason, you know, there's no testing on the racetrack. But what a lot of these teams will do is they'll go through the drills. They'll have a, a timer. They'll have a stopwatch. And they're going to simulate the teardown. They want to do this several times, dozens and dozens of times before they go testing. Testing may take place at Gainesville. It may take place somewhere in Florida. But there's a lot of work that these teams go through to simulate uh, being at the track. And, um, you know, Mike Green knows that better than anyone. So, um, you know, they're not just going over parts and fine-tuning everything. Uh, you know, the drivers are working out. They're going through their mental preparation. The teams are doing it as well. Yeah, and I think the last thing I'd like to just put a period on this by saying is them hiring Mike Green is a clear indication to me that they're going to run 24 races because you're not going to hire Mike Green if you're going to run a limited schedule, in my opinion. And I'm not sure Green would you know, take a deal like that because he could probably land up with somebody who's going to. So I think that's a good thing. Um, I want to talk about the Snap-on team now because we've come past the beginning of 2021, which I believe now means that all the crew is now in the shop working. I know that uh, John Collins and Rip have been there doing their preliminary work, but I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think all the guys are now in the shop working with crews. Uh, they are. I haven't been there, but I heard they were there up and running. I, I know over the holidays uh, they were – you know, they were trickling in, uh, taking a look at the inventory, doing some work. Um, you know, this is a team, when you look at the top five in Funny Car that consisted of Hagen, Tommy Johnson, Beckman, Caps, you know, a couple of those names aren't going to be there. Tommy and Beckman, at least yeah. at this point, uh, they may not be. So that means that, you know, there's going to be a couple of drivers that are going to be able to fill that, that top five. Uh, you know, Bob Tasca is, is rounded out the fifth position, but... Who's it going to be? Is it going to be Cruz? Is he going to be able to jump right into that position that Tommy was in? I think it's going to take a little bit of time. Um, I do believe that they will be a top five performer by somewhere in the middle part of the season. The only question is, is how long will it take them? Uh, John Collins is, has brought his entire crew. He's brought his clutch combination, his engine combination. They've taken a look at the superchargers and the chassis and all the parts. They're going to balance that car exactly the way they had Tommy's car. And when you talk about experience and ability, there's no question that Cruz will be able to fill those shoes uh, and then some. So uh, who's going to step up to the plate? Is it going to be J.R. Todd? Is it going to be Wilkerson? Uh, another big question that we're all and always waiting on is John Force and Robert Hyde. What's yeah. going to happen with them? Are they going to be racing? Are they not? Uh, so there's a lot of questions that uh, still have to be answered. But when you talk about the Snap-on team, this is, this is a team that is um seems to have made all the right moves you know when you look at some of these you know i talked about the nfl and getting these coaches and offensive coordinators you know the snap on team they've put they've, they've got like the best they got belichick and they got the quarterback <laughs> right and and they brought some of the big players with them like the, the tampa bay buccaneers um you, you know so it's going to be interesting to see how they test i'm sure it's going to take a little bit of time um, but one of the things that I really like about what they've done and, and this group and what Cruz has done and the decision that he made to bring the entire team, and I'm sure there was a pretty big expense that came with that, is these guys mean business. This is a different team. This is They yeah. brought a different culture into that shop, and that's really what it's all about. Yeah. These guys don't talk much. I don't see a lot of social activity. They get in there. They work. They put their head down. And the results showed. Look at what they did to Tommy Johnson. Yep. And if it wasn't for the talent of Hagen and, and some of the other competition, I mean, this 
this is a guy that would have won, you know, championships. So uh, it's a good move on their part, and I, I think we're going to see results. With, don't be surprised if we see him early on. So a rumor that I have heard that has not yet been confirmed and, and may well be uh, once, you know, by the time the show is published a little bit later uh, on today, um, word is that Josh Hart has hired Ron Douglas uh, to captain his to captain his new top fuel team. My understanding is the equipment that Josh Hart has uh, has come from Bob Vandergriff Racing. So I guess it makes a lot of sense that uh, if anybody knows those parts and pieces, it's Ron Douglas. Obviously, he knows how to make them run because uh, we constantly found ourselves saying, well, these guys don't show up a lot, but when they do, they're competitive. Um, it would seem to me that this is a very smart hire by Josh Hart. Yeah, another good move. Ron Douglas is really probably one of the most underestimated crew chiefs out there, and this is a, another guy that doesn't just show up in tune. He can do that. He does a good job, but he builds the car. He, he understands all the systems. Uh, and if you go back on his history, most of the cars, especially more, more recently that he's worked on, uh, have been very successful. And he doesn't go to all the races. You know, he kind of jumps around from team to team. Yep. Uh, you know, there's a couple of, um, you know, non-touring cars that uh, just need some help for a race or two or five. And Ron Douglas jumps in there and they qualify. They go around or two. And some of the better equipment that he has, you know, you see him in the late round. So, uh, when you look at the top 10 and top fuel, if Josh Hart has the funding and has the depth to uh, and the resources to compete at most of the races, there's no reason that this this guy couldn't be a top 10 car. And Josh himself, you know, I, I don't um, I think the question is how he is going to be able to perform against, you know, most of these high caliber drivers, because um, you got to think that the limited races that he has run uh, in top fuel uh, being active and, and being at most of those racers is only going to help him. He's got plenty of experience in competition, so that's not a concern. Yeah, that's a fact. Uh, another kind of uh, cool piece of news that popped out today, uh, as we're actually earlier this week, is uh, that Bobby Bodie's going to make a 10-race uh, run at it next year, which I think is great. I mean, uh, running about half the schedule is cool. He's still in college. Uh, his dad has, uh, I guess, officially stepped out of the driver's seat and uh, he did a great job. You know, he came in, ran a couple races uh, in 2020, and I think both of us came away going, okay, this guy actually has the chops. I mean, granted, we saw a little bit of new new guy blues at one or two of the races, but he didn't do anything that was um, that was over his head. Yeah, this, Brian, is really one of my favorite stories. It was last year. It will continue to be. You know, I have a son. You have, you have boys. Um, you know, my son, I, I, as soon as I recovered, actually, I wasn't even recovered. We went to Daytona Cart Week. <laughs> <laughs> and I started my recovery process there. And, and I know all of these fathers, like Jess and Ashley, Bob Bodie, um, you know, the McGay Hayes that have their, their sons that are watching. Uh, it's a little more nerve-wracking for them. I, I know it is for me, but it's, it's probably one of the best things they'll ever do in their lives, uh, Bob Bodie seeing his son and the success and just the youth. You know, he's young. Yeah got those young legs um you know i'm not gonna say he's fearless because he seems like he has a lot of respect for the car but i was very impressed at at uh you know i never saw him license i never saw him test um but his first racing competition i, I would give him an a i think he in a short amount of time he did everything right and i think that's a credit to his father uh and anyone else that helped him along the way i know a lot of drivers you know tend to want to help some of these younger drivers they have a tendency to connect with with certain drivers. I think Bobby Bodie is a very charismatic kid. Um, and I think he's very capable. So it's going to be good to see this car have some success. And I think on some level, it, taking 
Bob Bodie out of the seat will allow him to focus more on the tuning of the car, which is what he's always done. Uh, one of the biggest problems that they've had were hurting parts. Um, you know, so maybe that'll allow him to focus better on the parts that go into the car, tuning it, and um, that car performs. It performs well. I mean, it'll run. It'll dip into the four O's, and if you can do that, you're competitive. You can qualify. You can bang a round or two out. But I think it's such a good story because you see some of these younger drivers. You talked about Austin Prock. It'll be interesting to see what happens uh, to him, Justin Ashley. You know, Bobby Bodie. I think we're right before our eyes. The, these these younger drivers are coming up, and we're seeing a, a little bit of a change in the scenery. Yeah, and I guess you know, my last question for you is, uh, you know, this this whole conversation has really kind of singled or, or really been around single car teams, which I don't think there's any way to deny it at this point. That's the momentum of how the sport's moving right now. I mean, the the single car team or the loose association of a couple of single car teams with each other is is really seemingly the model for 2021 and beyond. And I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. I mean, I've, I certainly have no uh, nothing against John Force Racing or Don Schumacher Racing or Coletta Motorsports, but uh, I do feel like if you take all the if you take all these cars and spread them out into the hands of a bunch of different people, it certainly changes the look and feel of a lot of these races, and maybe it changes the fact that not everybody's running the 24-race tour. But I like the fact that these guys seemingly all have pretty good equipment, and they're able to rely on some help from either an experienced tuner or some experienced crew or some consulting from other teams to be competitive. I think it makes for a really fun weekend. We've seen it happen, you know, kind of year after year now. Yeah, and I think one of the best stories um, of of 2020 was the Justin Ashley and Tony Vizzo oh, final yeah. round. Yeah. And that right there made a statement. That I, I mean, and the suspense was there. I mean, we had to wait a couple weeks for yeah. the final to go off. But the fact that these two, for the most part, what we call independents, these single-car teams, uh, and all of them, all of them have done a good job at ratcheting up their their level of competition. Everyone. You look at the Creases. We talked about Bob Bodie. Um, they've, they've gone to some of the other teams. You know, that's one of the things that I really admired about Don Schumacher. He helps other racers. He will not hesitate yeah. to tell Todd Okahara, to tell any of his tuners, Go help those guys. They're going to go help them. Um, Connie Coletta, their team, you walk up to them, ask them some questions. Yeah. They're going to give it to you straight. They'll walk over. They always have. That's very admirable about these teams because they compete against those guys, and they don't have to do it, but they do it. They do it for the for the betterment of the sport. And uh, in terms of competition, um, it's not like it was 10 years ago. You'd see some of these cars really struggle. They blow up parts. That's not the case anymore. They may sit out one or two runs. They may make one good run and park it, depending on how many cars you're showing up to qualify. But, um, you know, Stephen Densham, when Tim Wilkerson rolls his second car out, you see all of these cars are a lot more competitive. And I think that's one of the best things to happen to this sport in a long time. Yeah, I agree with that, man. Well, Tony, thank you as always for your time. Looking forward to uh, getting things back going here in March, which is the plan to run at Gainesville the uh, second weekend in March. Fingers crossed that we can get that uh, off and going. And as I mentioned kind of in the open of the show, which you didn't hear because I did it before you came on, uh, you know, this is going to be as fluid a year, hopefully a less fluid year than 2020 was. (laughs) I I feel like at least the first half of this thing is going to have a fair amount of shucking and jiving left into it. Well, let's do this again. I know in the next couple of weeks, a lot of things are going to be coming out and shaking out, and uh, I'm sure we're going to have a lot of good things to talk about. Well, keep your ear on the railroad tracks there in, uh, in Brownsburg, and I will catch up with you soon. Thanks, man. See you, Brian. Thanks.
So Tony Pedregon dropping a little insight there into his own personal life as well as what he knows regarding the insider situations happening in Brownsburg, Indiana, where the majority, of course, of the Nitro teams are based. As we continue on through our 2020, now 2021 offseason, we'll bring you more stories from different categories around the world of NHRA Camping World Drag Racing. Looking forward to get things kicked off here in this new year, and I hope you enjoyed our first broadcast of what is now the third season of the NHRA Insider Podcast. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you Tune in next week as we continue to tell stories, talk to people, and get the inside scoop on everything going on behind the scenes and in front of the cameras in the world of NHRE Camping World Drag Racing. I'm Brian Loans. Thanks for listening.